Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of Earth Repair Radio. We have disrupted the, the, the systems which have created paradise. If we look at the science of the climate and the risks of climate impact, then we, we realize that we're going to have to restore all degraded lands on Earth. And so we're going to have to engage all the people in, in this. Everybody around the world is going to have to know how to do it. All their, their homes, their communities, their states, their countries have all got to be, you know, climate proof. <laughs> if we took, say, millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people onto the degraded landscapes, well, let's go camping. <laughs> I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we've got a special guest. We've got John Dennis Liu. John is a filmmaker and ecologist who has told inspiring stories of ecosystem rehabilitation in China, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Jordan, and beyond through his films, including Hope in a Changing Climate and Green Gold. In this episode, we discuss the latest project he has initiated, which is the building of ecosystem restoration camps, the first of which is now in operation in Spain. Please enjoy this interview with John D. Liu. Hello, John. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well here in Beijing. Yeah. Well, uh, it's really great to talk to you. I'm really happy that you um, made some time for me. And uh, I know that a lot of people in, say, the permaculture world are familiar with your work and especially the the images. I think the before and after shots of the Los Plateau, I have seen that image echoed again and again. And I think a lot of people actually use that to some degree. Those, those photos and that video clips you did as a proof of concept of uh, healing degraded lands and ecosystem restoration. So that just brings us to what I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, is this other project you're doing besides your film work, which are these ecosystem restoration camps. And I, I recently saw you describe this as the great work of our time. So I would love if you could give us an introduction to what are ecosystem restoration camps, how has this idea emerged, and where is it going? Okay, well, I think the... The most important thing for me was that when I was asked to document the, the rehabilitation of the Lus Plateau, it, it was completely out of the range of the normal society. So the idea that we are here to compete with each other, to gather material possessions to each other, didn't didn't figure in this. It 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 was clearly that it was necessary for the entire population to consider how were they going to collaborate with one another to, to have a completely different intention for their, their work. And so this, this led to massive changes, and the changes were in hydrology, the hydrological cycle, the soil fertility, the climate regulation the temperatures, the evaporation rates, and the biodiversity, that it became clear that all of these things were um, dynamic. 
and that they were affected by our understanding and our choices. And when I, when I understood this, I realized that all the work that I'd been doing covering the political leaders and, and economic activities were not important as the ecology, because no one remembers Deng Xiaoping or Brezhnev. I mean, they're really rarely brought up. They seemed like, you know, enormous characters, Ronald Reagan or, you know, anything. And then later, but, but ecology is clearly going to determine not only our lives, but the quality of life for all living things in the future. And when that, when that understanding came into my mind and my, my understanding, I couldn't continue to do the type of journalism that I've been doing for a long time. And that, that meant kind of turning my back on the traditional journalistic world because it, it didn't care about what I cared about. So, and it's, it's interesting also that I didn't really know much about permaculture. I've sort of heard about it, but I was looking at systems and ecological systems. And when I, what, what I found at later was that the permaculture world found me <laughs> because when the permaculture world found out about my work, they said, oh, well, this justifies everything that we're talking about. And what I saw was that permaculturalists are working in the microcosm on the different understandings about how do you infiltrate and retain moisture? How do you stimulate the microbiological communities? How, what is the relationship between diversity and function? So, you know, it's a perfect fit, you know, actually. And uh, it's really great that both of these things are now um, coming together. So there's a, a, a sense in, in, in doing this, I realize that there are really two sorts of things going on. One is regenerative agriculture, where many people are focused on productivity and they want food and they want maybe production and income. So they're looking at ways to produce something to sell. But what I was looking at was ecological function, how the hydrological cycle functions, how the atmosphere is related you know, to the respiration of the plants and to, to the temperature differentials. The, there's certain areas, and if we do get into the very specific things, I don't know how long your, your podcast goes, but there's some very specific things that I think are extremely important right now that we all need to kind of collaboratively study. So, um, I'll go as I, long as you want I, to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easier to get me to to talk than it is to get me to stop. So, um, you know, but um, what what I found was that the methods that we have now, the institutions that we have now, like the World Bank or the United Nations or the governments or the corporations, that they kind of have a different intention. They have a different reason for being. And pretty much that reason for being is to maintain the status quo. And 
as I started to go through and learn about how the hydrological cycle was disrupted or why the soil was becoming infertile or, you know, why huge areas were being desertified or deforestation was taking place or there was war and migration, then I kind of saw, oh, but, you know, in journalism, as I, I practiced journalism for such a long time, it's who, what, when, where, and then it's why. So after I had exhausted who, what, when, where, I started to wonder, like, well, why? Why do, do all of the cradles of, of human civilization look like the moon? Why are they disrupted and where there's wars and struggles and mass poverty and maybe starvation and, you know, that sort of thing? And as I started to contemplate this, I realized that actually the existing economy and the existing societal choices incentivize degradation. So to follow the, to, to the idea that our, our purpose is to accumulate material possessions and that we're in competition with all other things, all other people, this is not aligned with natural evolutionary systems. It's not aligned with other species of animals. I mean, it doesn't really matter which species you look at, but, I mean, you could look at ants or bees or wildebeests or gorillas or, I mean, there's a whole, I mean, chimps and gorillas and bonobos, they'd be fairly close, whales, but whatever, whatever species that you're looking at, it actually has an understanding that mutual benefit is in every all the individual's interests. It's not in the individual's interest to pursue their own interests to the exclusion of the of the rest of the species. So we've seriously gotten something wrong. Yeah. And what I what I notice was that this is close to original sin. So this is very close to the Western cosmology, the, the Judeo-Christian-Islamic cosmology that human beings emerged in paradise. But then human beings sinned, and they were cast out of, of the garden. And when you, when you start to think that, oh, it looks like the first part of that cosmology is right, that human beings sinned. So then it's like, well, what did they do that got them cast out of the garden? So I, I'm not sure about the snake and the apple thing. I mean, I, that, that seems to be a kind of a, a metaphor or something. But um, what, what I noticed was if I applied some logic to this, that it looked like original sin was the reduction of biodiversity. So by reducing biodiversity, we caused a reduction in biomass. By causing a reduction in biomass, we caused a reduction in the accumulation of organic materials. And by doing all these things, we changed photosynthesis. We changed nutrient release, nutrient recycling by lowering microbiologic communities, which had basically built the whole system. And then, then it completely destroyed the hydrological cycle. So instead of infiltrating and being retained and respirating 
and maintaining a, a normalized or regulated temperature, it's causing huge evaporation rates and massive temperature differentials. And so when you study the physics of temperature differentials, you find out, oh my goodness, you know, that's driving extreme and erratic weather events, cyclonic activity, wind direction, wind speed, and the ability to reach critical mass for rain, you know, everything is connected to these things. So as I started to understand these things, I started to look at the institutions and we we, we found like, well, okay, if we understand this, we can restore these places. Oh, that's good. You know, let's go. And so we started looking at how could we restore these places? Where are they? How many are there? You know, how are we going to do it? And I realized, boy, it's just really taking a long time. You know, it's, it's now 25 years uh-huh. since I've been working on this. And I was thinking, oh, you know, we're going to fail if we don't actually, you know, figure this out as quickly as possible. And what I saw was the existing system is creating a kind of expert class and, and hierarchies. And so the only people who can make decisions are these leaders. And, you know, I, I'm not really convinced that the leaders are, are that much better, more knowledgeable. In fact, I find people working on the ground much more knowledgeable. I mean, if the leaders are wearing cufflinks, for instance, yeah. or they mainly stay indoors, then the idea that they know more than, you know, some gardener who's doing a huge compost system, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. The person who's doing the compost system is doing more than, than you know, somebody who's writing policy or maybe can sign a check or something like that. Right. So, so what I realized was I was involved in these big projects and they were good to the extent that they happened, although, you know, they were expensive, they didn't engage everybody, and they were slow. So when I started to think about that, I thought, well, how could you do this in another way? And my first idea, because I kept thinking about my own process of study, I had to meet a lot of scientists, I had to read a lot of books, papers, I had to go to a lot of places and observe and then understand how the, the systems were. But this is too slow. You know, some people can do it. It's a wonderful thing. You know, I, I, I recommend anybody who wants to study to go study. But actually, we need action now. So we need really to, to you know, have a tsunami of consciousness where we really understand these things deeply instead of we sort of theoretically understand them and discuss them in the marble halls of some big, you know, pile of architecture. Mm -hmm. So then I thought, oh my goodness, we don't need anything. All we need is the basic infrastructure for survival. So this is like shelter and water and sanitation and food and, you know, this kind of thing. So if we reduce it to this, and especially if if we don't put, make that like, uh, that's the way we're going to live forever. This is just a place where we go camping and we do this and maybe we have rotations of people who go camping for a few weeks or a few months. And, you know, it depends on how much they enjoy camping in a way and how much they enjoy uh, doing restoration. But in this way, everybody can go at some time and everybody can learn and everybody can do 
And that's what we need. We need everybody to learn and to do it immediately. So if we took, say, millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people onto the degraded landscapes and we stopped, we, we educated them and they, they really deeply understood where de- drought is coming from. And then they worked every day a little bit, not too much, but every day a little bit to make this better, then they're going to have a huge impact on, on, on moisture. Yeah, now, it's, so it sounds like you're not just creating ecosystem re- restoration camps, you're really creating an ecosystem restoration corpse, you know, like a, a sort of... Uh, well, I'm not. Force. But, it's, yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think what, what we're saying is that we need a de- dis- distributed, decentralized, self-organizing and self-governing methodology for everybody to become completely knowledgeable and to realize that if we do this together, it's in our mutual benefit. There is a higher level of this, you could think, selflessness, but that's kind of hard to achieve. I mean, you know, you may, maybe you have Jesus or Buddha or you have some extraordinary individuals like uh, Nelson Mandela or something, Gandhi, yeah. who kind of transcend. But the, the majority of people, I don't, I don't, you know, to ask them, okay, now you're going to be Jesus, you know, it's like, oh, no, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. So what, what we really would like to say is, well, everybody has a role. Everybody needs to understand this. Everybody needs to do this. You know, it's, 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 it's simple to say, well, let's just separate our garbage, you know, everything will be okay. No, it's no, you know, we were, we're, that's not enough, you know, change the windows, drive a, an electric car. You know, those are not s- serious in terms of they're not at the scale that the problem is. So, so at some point I realized, well, this, you know, if the problem is what it looks like it is, which is enormous, then the scale of the solution is also going to be equal to the problem. And so we're going to have to engage all the people in, in this. Everybody around the world is going to have to know how to do it. All their, their homes, their communities, their states, their countries have all got to be, you know, climate proof, <laughs> In a way, you know, they've got to be resilient and robust, and we've got to understand that you can't destroy the hydrological cycle or the soil fertility or the biodiversity without having huge, huge consequences. Yeah. So, how do you learn that fast? Well, go camping. You know, if you if you go camping, and when you're camping, you're playing guitar and you're having organic food. That's great, but you're also working to to learn all the differences between anaerobic and aerobic and fungal composting and inoculation and the role of microbes and you're learning taxonomy of all the different kinds of species and the relationships between companion plants and you're propagating and planting out indigenous and endemic plants and you understand what is an exotic and what is evasive and, you know, sort of, you know, basically it becomes a game. We're, we're playing like we're children again, you know, let's go camping 
And let's have the kids do that. Let's have the grown-ups do that. Let's have the old people do that. And everybody does this. And what happens is you get a layer of organic soil. And that soil has vastly more carbon in it. And it's living. It's alive. It's not dirt. It's soil. And, and that is fertile. And then when, you, when everybody understands, well, that's got to have a, a, a diverse vegetative cover on top of it, that it can't have a single monoculture because this is very dangerous in terms of, of disease and, and it's not as robust. It doesn't have all of the functions. Maybe the root systems don't go deep into the ground and create a capillary action to bring water to the surface and there's, there's not a transfer of information. You need this, once, once you start learning and, you know, being able to discuss the role of mycorrhizal fungi and the communications between species and the transfer of, you know, we're at another space, another level of consciousness. So human consciousness now has it looking like our architecture and our mechanical things and our computing devices and so this is what we've done we're great at this we're wonderful but actually this looks like golden calves you know we're we're looking at shiny objects which ultimately degrade and fall apart as toxic waste in a dump someplace and we're look and, and we we're missing the fact that hey have you looked at the redwoods lately you know, the, they're, the, they're at 100 meters high and the, the coolness and the, and the respiration and the fact that they drink water from the sky, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So suddenly at, at camps, we can all have this conversation every day. Mm. And we, all of this, I've been, I've been for many years now that I've been connected to permaculture I've noticed that there's a lot of people who study and there's no jobs for them. There's nothing for them to do. They come, then they're all trying to grow vegetables to sell at the farmer's market. So they have the smallest income and they're the ones we need to lead uh, to a, 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 com- a total restoration of the planet. But we're telling them good luck, you know, selling two, you know, or something. Right. And it's, it's horrible. And what we need to do is, like, say, okay, what is the value of climate regulation when the biggest risk you have is climate change? Yeah. What, what is the value of rehydrating dehydrated biomes when you're facing billions and trillions of dollars in liability from wildfires? Yeah, yeah no, it's just, it's stupid. Yeah. We're, we're into we're into fantasy land because we're thinking products. You know, we make something and we think it's value. It's worth more than 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 life. Yeah. It's it's not true. Life is more valuable. So we need to tell the truth about this. We need to tell the truth about the, the value of life. And and by doing this give jobs to all the people who've been preparing themselves to restore the earth and then have them lead to take all the other people for two weeks or two months or six months or whatever they want to go out there 
and learn how to do it and to spread this knowledge everywhere in the world simultaneously while we're doing it. So it's not a theoretical class in a in a Hilton hotel someplace where you're sitting there drawing on paper. Yeah. You know, you're going out and you're growing soils and you're going out and 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 while we're there, we have less or no or, or little impact because we're sitting in a teepee or a yurt, which is the same type of dwelling, and it's magnificent dwellings, by the way. It's this really high level of architecture and, and culture and art, craft, to make these kinds of, kinds of things. So sit there and meditate and feel the wind, feel the, 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 the temperature changes, feel the moisture, feel the, the dryness, feel, look and see, you know, so, so suddenly, instead of con- being consumers and wasters and, pi- you know, piling up huge piles of trash or consuming more and more stuff, we're actually the solution, you know, so, you know, that old cliche about if you're not part of the solution, you're probably part of the problem, you know, so, Let's all become part of the solution and go there and do this. Now, when you start to think about this, there are homeless people, vast numbers of homeless people. They don't have any place to sleep. They don't have any food. They're begging on the sides of the roads. They're sleeping in the, you know, at the inner, I I noticed a lot in California, they're putting their tents up at the exits and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh my God, they're, they're actually sleeping. They're breathing the fumes. From the cars coming off of the, you know, it's like, what is going on with this? Now, the the fact of the matter is they're not contributing when they're in in this case because they're broken. You know, they're like, they they can't understand what's going on with the society and they're they're failing. And the society is failing them, too. So can you imagine they become heroes? They become the people who are restoring the hydrology, restoring the soil fertility, restoring the forest. How much work is there to do that now in all these places that have been destroyed by fire, all the the drought places? Once this is understood, the local governments, the landowners, everybody can say, yes, uh, I think we need ecosystem restoration camps here. You know, if you... If you want to go restore, well, please go restore. And, you know, how much does a teepee cost? You know, I mean, how much, how much does it cost to give shovels and tools and seeds and, you know, composting toilets and and water filtration systems? And, you know, we can have everything. So suddenly people who are now the, the young people who have studied this and want to lead, they will have jobs as leaders. They're the ones with the knowledge. They have to share this knowledge with everybody who doesn't know. Those people who who are heartbroken or are broken, you know, the the post traumatic stress disorder, the the veterans, suicide is the highest mortality for the armed services. Well, let's you know, let's honor their service. Let's honor and let's honor the pain that they're experiencing. So it's a little bit yeah. like the Civilian Conservation Corps of uh, the, uh, I believe it was what the twenties or during the Great Depression when all the jobless people were taken out. It was from nineteen ninety three to nineteen forty two is yeah. is when the 
the Civilian Conservation Corps, and 5% of American males worked in it. So it was mainly males. Yeah. Um, I would say, and it was, it was uh, managed by the War Department. So you didn't have a Defense Department, you had a War Department. And they wore uniforms, they were paid a dollar a day. And that was pretty good because people were jumping out of, of buildings after the 29 uh, crash. And after the Dust Bowl in the Southwest, the farms were, were wiped out. So there were all these people, farmers and bankers, and the, the farmers and the bankers were there together. And they found out, hey, I like you. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was like a really cool place to hang out. Yeah. And, and the craft that came out of the Civilian Conservation Corps, some, many of those places in the state parks and national parks and the schools that were built by, by the Civilian Conservation Corps, they're the highest level of craftsmanship we've seen hmm. in the United States. So, I mean, if we add craft <laughs> to ecosystem restoration camps, right. it can be great, fun, and very educational. But I think the main thing is we're forced now to address the climate issue, and we don't have a good way to do it. Yeah. But I think as I've, I've looked at this, ecosystem restoration camps, it's like, oh, yeah, and we see it in Spain. You you wanted to know a little bit about Spain, probably. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll, well, first off, I want to say one thing that um these uh these awesome giant swales that Bill Mollison features in the Global Gardener video and um, down in Tucson, Arizona, I visited them a number of times in my permaculture class with Brad Lancaster down there. Those were the, built by the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, back in, you know, the twenties and thirties. And here we are 80 years later and they still, they've, they've restored the whole, um, area that they've been putting well, in these your, forests. Yeah. And, yeah. Very cool. So that yeah, was, I get your dates, right? 33 to 42, 33 to 42. Okay. So yeah. yeah so somewhere in that decade, these, these structures were, were built, but, um, so Altiplano is, your first ecosystem res- restoration camp, and that is in the, the high elevation in Spain. And uh, I was looking through some of your information, your report, and it's interesting because it looks like you're working on the land of a, a farmer, and part of the agreement is that 90% of the land will remain in agricultural uses, and then 10% will go into ecosystem restoration, native ecosystem restoration. So that that was interesting. I'm I'm just curious when you see the long arc of this project because I'm I'm sure that you have a lot of other potential camps brewing and all these different situations. What do you feel like is the ideal proportion of agriculture to native ecosystems in your efforts and you know how do you see the ecosystem restoration and the human productivity and agriculture how do you see these things kind of working together in the long term vision of these camps yeah i i think this is an important question but the way i see it it can't be decided by an individual this has got to be a societal conversation so what needs to happen is to realize that each ecosystem restoration camp has to have its own self-organization and self-government, but that we can share principles across. There, there, it, it will be impossible when you start to understand how many camps are required to restore. So if you, if you, if you think it's just about teaching yourself, you know, to 
do better agriculture or to restore hydrology in a small place, then you, know, you haven't quite grasped the concept. So if, if, if we look at the science of the climate and the risks of climate impact, then we, we realize that we're going to have to restore all degraded lands on Earth. So we haven't really got our mind around the scale of the problem yet. We're thinking, oh, if I just do this or that, and we haven't we, we haven't quite figured it out. And and you know, a lot of people are thinking about it, but those people are mostly wearing cufflinks and meeting at Hilton hotels and walking around in marble halls to talk about uh, you know. And I I really think that while that has a role, the policy must come to the point where it understands this, but that's a very slow process for people like that to understand. Once we have ecosystem restoration camps, then we, we create a kind of a level of, of comfort so that you're, when you go to an ecosystem restoration camp, it's not terrible, it's fine, you know, you, it's glamping, you know, you're, you're, you're on safari or you're, you know, you're visiting Mongolia or something. And here you go, and you stay out there and you feel the elements and you work with other people and you discuss with the people who are at the sharp edge of the spear, really. And then what you find is you don't have to own work where you're camping. The, the camp is where you live, but you can work in the mountains. You can work in the watersheds. You can work all in the, in the, in the grasslands, prairie. So it's really about getting the living conditions that's a sort of an infrastructural development and then it's to work with the authority the governments in the in the in the you know sort of bigger public lands and so if if, yeah i was gonna say the camp's essentially a nucleus it's a place to teach and to live, and then from the camp, yeah, I think we should practice at the camp all of the things that we're talking about. So the camp should have great food forests, because then we can, and, and also it should have connections to universities and scholars, so that each camp is being measured, like people can, you know, I, I was at a at the soil not oil and singing frogs farm was presenting their data. They they increased their organic soil organic matter in the soils from two percent to like thirteen percent or something like this very rapidly. Now this is huge. If you if you understand now I'm not of the of the position that our only problem is is carbon dioxide and, you know, CO2 disequilibrium in the atmosphere, that's a silly simplification. But it is a good indicator, and it's been studied now for quite a long time, so it's something that we need to, to consider. And when, when you look at this, the simplistic, the carbon traders, the policymakers who want a simple solution, they're all looking at this. But, but Ratan Lal, Professor Ratan Lal at Ohio State, is probably the the top authority on on this carbon cycling, and he says if we had two percent to to the degraded landscapes, 
in carbon, soil carbon, uh, organic matter in the soils, then we'll mitigate all of the, of the emissions. Hmm. Well, wait a minute. They went from, they went from 2% to 13%. So it's 11% difference rapidly. This is huge. So if, if you get the singing frogs people to teach people how to do this kind of composting in mass, and everybody is doing it. And there's other other work that's showing that uh, some of the biodynamic and what they call um, well fungal the the fungal composting and inoculations are 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 probably even better at stimulating microbial communities to to absorb carbon into the soils. So don't need to put huge amounts of compost necessarily. You need to understand the, the cycling and, and multiplication reproduction of microbial communities. So, I mean, all of this work on microbial communities has happened in the 25 years that I've been studying this. They didn't know anything about it. So, I mean, they weighed them. You know, I, I would ask them, like, I say, oh, these, these microbes, they, they're very important. And they go, I go, what do we know about it? And they go, well, we weigh them. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? You know, you can't, you can't do that. So now there's all kinds of stuff to differentiate the exact microbe, microbial community and what it is that their role is. And, you know, so it's, it's moving very fast in, in that area, but it's not, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't reach to the public. Right. How could it reach to the public? Ecosystem restoration camps. They'll two days from now they'll be using the latest yeah. knowledge about yeah. microbial communities. So that's where we need to go. Hmm. Now I, I keep thinking: Have you been to a rainbow gathering? Have you heard of rainbow gatherings? No, I've never. You know, if they invited me, I would go. Basically, I only go where I'm invited yeah, because yeah. I've been. I've been all over the world, and I right. just don't go to places where they don't invite me because I'm too tired yeah. of, of going yeah. places, well, and we, I would rather stay home right. unless there's an invitation. I, I feel like if there's an invitation, they they I'm supposed to go there. Yeah. If there's no invitation for me to show up, what would I do? I'd go, hey, I'm John Liu. Listen to me. You know? uh, no, I, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, um, in my younger days, I went to these, there's these traveling nomadic festivals that basically happen in national forests and anywhere from, you know, several hundreds to, you know, the 25,000 people go to the biggest one and they build this temporary uh, camp or city in the national forest and, uh, and then disassemble the entire thing with only, you know, some level of compaction left and they haul off all the garbage. And it's this very monumental physical effort and it's very decentralized. A lot of terms like what you're talking about and they accomplish this great physical feat by creating this sort of temporary city. And then, um, so a lot of the things you're talking about, I, I kind of can see this, th you know, that, that type of culture kind of uh, gives a little bit of a glimpse of what it may look like to harness people and set up these temporary cities, except there the focus would be an ecosystem restoration camp. So uh, it's just interesting that there's somewhat of a, a cultural precedent to that, um, to what you're talking about. So it's, it's a neat vision. Um, do you see, like, 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 do you kind of see um, other sorts of organizations that could 
have some sort of synergy with the camps, like like festivals or like um, you know agriculture that needs seasonal workers, or like have you have you envisioned some some different synergies with other organizations that you could share? Well, this is this is a great area to discuss. I mean, I think that there's uh, what I imagine. It's like visioning, isn't it, in a way, or you know, envisioning something. So what I imagine is that the camps are basically infrastructural. So this is a role that hasn't really been taken on, that the concept hasn't been said. But now it's like a concept whose time has come. We have to do this. You know, once you, once you can imagine it and see it in your mind, then we almost have to do it because it, it's, it, it addresses so many problems that we, we have. And, you know, we, in order to do this correctly, you have to let go of any thought about selfishness. It's not about a business idea. It's not about ownership of the camps. It's about the concept and the spreading of the concept so that everybody all over the world, imagine what this means to someplace like Puerto Rico that just got wiped out. And if you if you if you sort of add the the kind of habitat for humanity concept. So here you 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 have a, a methodology for arriving with a temporary housing situation with a ability to grow food rapidly and with the ability to restore ecological function. Now if you add into that a kind of habitat for humanity idea and you do earth architecture and you know, design local yeah. upcycling, everything, you know, then suddenly you can go into someplace like that and address things quickly. I would say all the organizations, all the organizations should look at the ecosystem restoration camps as an infrastructure and they should all be there. It shouldn't be about like, uh, this is our, you know, I mean, I heard somebody say, this is my global village. <laughs> And I went, what? You know, what are you talking? You know, this makes no sense. It's like it's like somebody else told me that they belong to the anarchist party. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, that, that, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so, you know, here we 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 have to kind of realize that we are a species, and we're called to act as a species on a planetary scale. And we, we in, in the existing society and economy, we have too much stuff. The embedded energy in our vehicles, in our houses, in our toys, in our everything is too much. We've got to let go of this. And, and so how are we going to do that? So, I'm, I'm, you know, if you, if you say, Walk out the door and throw away the key and get, you know, I'm going to just renounce all possessions. What? <laughs> you know, really? Who? You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's rare, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And to force that to happen, terrible idea. So what is the alternative? Well, let's go camping. <laughs> let's reduce, reduce our, our usage to the minimum and see what happens. You know, so I think you, what we see in Spain is that the people who have gone there, some of them leaving P 
PhD research jobs or policy analysis jobs or other kind of, you know, groundskeeping jobs. And they go there and they go, this is what I want to do. This is wonderful. I'm, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, they couldn't pay me enough to, to, because of the satisfaction I feel when I see the water go back into the soil and the place becoming green again and, you know, starting to recycle. They also start to understand how hard this is. So, I mean, really, when you, when you understand, I mean, there in the Altiplano, you have these huge winds that will come, come through. You know, and so the power of nature, but then when they start to understand this, here's these huge winds coming through and they feel it. They are there and they're in it. And then suddenly they go, oh, we're small, you know, and we're, we're not, you know, we, we could try to put up our monumental things, but those are the ruins that will be dug through in the future. Mm. And if they're dug through in the future, while the civilization is gone because the whole place was turned into a desert. It, you know, it's kind of unfortunate for, for us and for our children and for future generations. So why don't we learn? Why don't we study this and, and understand it? Now, this also brings us to some of those pieces of information, which are pretty important, like the winds, the winds, there's physics involved in winds. I mean, we, why are we studying this stuff? It's not only so that we can make a spaceship to go to Mars. We're, we're, we're trying to understand what's happening, the physical phenomenon. I think this is the whole point of human understanding. This is the whole point of life, maybe, for humanity. The whole point of our specific evolutionary niche which I, I think is consciousness. So we're, we, we've never met. Mm-hmm. We're sitting on other opposite sides of the world, 15 hours apart. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, we're using language and concepts which have come to us from people long dead. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, wow. Yeah. Okay. You know, great. <laughs> you know, but... We're also dying, you know. We're here now, but we we're going to leave this this dimension, and the consciousness or the knowledge that we add to human understanding, and what we what we choose, what we decide, how we direct our our life's energy, is going to determine what is the future. For life on Earth, not just human life, life on Earth. So we need to get this right. And in a sense, it's a a type of meditation, a type of contemplation to, to come to an understanding within ourselves and then to come to a collective understanding about what is it that we believe. Do we believe the purpose of life is to go shopping? Do we believe that we're supposed to manufacture, you know, extract and manufacture and buy and sell things? Do we believe that speculation between the cost price and interest-bearing debt is is a legitimate thing? Mm -hmm. Or do we think maybe that's corrupt? You know, that's kind of indentured servitude. It's sort of 
providing an alternative to slavery. Well, you know, what are human rights? Do you buy your human rights or do you have them because you're alive? So all of these philosophical statements and concepts are 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 part of what what we are, but now we're kind of not representing Homo sapiens sapiens. We're more or less representing Homo materialensis. Hmm. So we're supposed to be material beings, but I I don't think so. We're not parasites we're we're sentient beings we're supposed to be processing what this means if we think about these things if we process what this means we have to say we're at we have an existential risk to human civilization at this time so all of humanity must focus and understand what this means and do the right thing otherwise we all die yeah so i mean kind of and 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 coming to this and, and realizing the, the, the camps idea, the first I got to this point with the camps, I realized, oh, that would work. You know, that could work. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you look at the institutions and the multi-millions and millions of everything that is needed to just do anything, yeah. you know, it, 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 what? You're not going to do anything. We're just going to, you know, they're going to talk about it. And they have been for decades. I remember the Kyoto Protocol was 1998 or, you know, I mean, it was like ridiculous, 97, 98, what was that? Yeah. But, you know, you know, this is, this is years ago now, 20 years ago. Right. So, you know, 20 years of, of not, you know, and, and the, the, the hurricanes, now you can have three hurricanes in one satellite image. Right. I mean, oh, yeah, there was just nine at one time with Florence at one point. They had an image of the world, and there was nine, uh, you know, tropical storm, hurricane, typhoon uh, storms all in this band around the equator simultaneously. And it was like, whoa, we've never seen that before. It's like, well, get yeah, used to it, but folks. Yeah. The, 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 no, no, the important thing is to understand that vortex movements in the air are caused by temperature differentials. Yeah. So where do you see temperature differentials? They're caused by human beings because we devegetate or we cover the, the, the ground with infrastructure and it's impermeable and it's and it and it dehydrates that it's, it's hot. So you know, so you have these huge temperature differentials. We're creating we're creating the whirlwinds. And it says in the Bible, you will reap the whirlwind. Hmm. Huh. Somebody knew that thousands of years ago. That's extraordinary. And we have to look at this and say, all right, I get it. And we're going to have to understand if, if we get it you, it, you know, once you understand this, you kind of can't unknow it. So you're going to be very unhappy if you don't act. Yeah. So this is, is a, a fundamental thing. Yeah. yeah. What do you see as, as the leverage points here? I mean, Obviously, we know how to restore degraded lands. I mean, you know, there's examples. We can see them all over the world. And, you know, you're talking about people stuck in, you know, homo materialism. And I'm just curious, like, like, how are we going to how are we going to turn the, the tide here? You know, how are we going to flip this where people actually we have the human will to go out and put our hands in the earth 
and restore the land on this massive scale? Well, I, I, you know, I recommend that we build ecosystem restoration camps. So if you start to understand that this is, this is a, is, is something that's not too difficult. You know, it, uh, an ecosystem restoration camp that would serve 50 people would cost less than a normal house in the United States. So that means that if one family is required to put, put up a house, then you can suddenly take care of 50 people. And if you grow the food in regenerative agriculture or, or, or food forests, then not only are you increasing the ecological function, you're, you're feeding the people with organic food. And if you limit the work so that you just work maybe five hours a day, five days a week, and the rest of the time have fun, then um, what you're doing is, you know, ideally you have fun without consuming, you know, have fun by swimming or walking or running or climbing or um, playing guitar and, you know, this kind of stuff. And imagine that not only are you feeding all the people in these places, but you're taking all surplus food and you're processing it so that, <laughs> that you have more food and, you know, and that you're not, you're not treating it like a, a mercantile, you know, so the, the problem is we're, we're in this mercantile economy where we say, okay, so you have to buy this. If you don't buy this, I'm not going to give it to you. Well, why don't we just lose that whole idea in the camp? So this is not this is not like change the society. This is like go to camp and eat dinner, you know. And when you eat dinner, don't pull out your wallet because nobody's asking you to pull out your wallet. And so that means that in this community, everybody eats. And I think, can we do that? Can we? Can we build a community where people can sleep in comfortable and safe conditions? Yeah. Can we make sure everybody's fed? Yeah. You know, can, can we make sure that there's good sanitation? Yeah. Can we control the water? Yeah. Can, can we grow a lot of food? Yeah. Can, you know, can we restore the forests then? Can, you know, with these healthy, comfortable people, who, who are now not engaged, can we send out these people every day for a few hours to make sure that we're protecting the area against fire? Mm -hmm. We're restoring the infiltration, the retention of moisture, the vegetation cover, the biodiversity. Can we do that? Yes. Mm -hmm. can, can more and more people do this all over the place? Yes. What is the result of that when we do that? When we do that, we get great satisfaction yeah. because like right now we're thinking, oh my God, my grandchildren, they're going to live in a, in a post-apocalyptic world with, right. you know, zombie apocalypse as a possibility. We need, we need to say, no, no, they're going to swim in the streams. They're going to be able to drink water out of the river again. Yeah. You know, if we do, if we do this right. Yeah. So you know, that's a level of consciousness that we can have. So we, we don't have to. The great thing about the study that I did was, was realizing you have to accept degraded states. But, but if you don't want a degraded state, you have to do something about it. Yeah. It requires that you understand it. And when you understand it, then you can solve it. Yeah. Now, the, uh, with the first camp, Altiplano, I'm, I'm wondering at this point, how, how long has it been going for? Well, 
it's less than two years. Okay. I mean, they, they, they've been there. There, there have been some, like we had, so we weren't ready. And the first people showed up, you know, okay. as soon as we sit, there's 16, almost 16,000 people talking about this yeah. in, in the, in the original group that we started. Yeah. And then when we got to a thousand who said they would support this financially yeah. with 10 euros per month, uh-huh. that's when we created, we said, well, if, if that's true, well, we could make a foundation. So we made a foundation. Nice. Then, now, then after that, we said, well, you know, we, the foundation is one thing, but the camp is another, you know, and suddenly we had people who just went out there yeah. and they said, we, we want to go. And so they went there. So you couldn't stop them. You couldn't yeah. even stop them. Yeah. And you know, that created some, you know, difficulties because the, the slightly, because it's, it's about the sequencing. Yeah. So if we could build the camps before they come yeah. with, you know, that would be kind of better than like saying, okay, you came now build the camp right. because they don't necessarily know how to build the camp. So let's look at the difference between say, who is a constructor and who is a restorationist or who's a student, you know, who's a, I think that there are different sort of tribes, yeah. you know, there, there, there are people who really can make teepees well. Mm. It's not that difficult yeah. and it's very satisfying. Yeah. So those people, there are people who can cook really, really well, mm. you know, feeding 50 people, no problem. But if you're going to do that three meals a day, you're going to need more than one person who can do that. You're going to need a number of people to do that. Yeah. So, so okay, you have you have these different roles, but don't over specialize and let people learn all of them. Yeah. Yeah, because I was I was wondering at some point it's going to be really interesting when the local population uh, begins to see the effects and to see what kind of repercussions you have. Because I guess you know the the with the idea that the camp is a nucleus for the regional restoration of the area, um, it's going to be interesting to see when, um, you know, the neighbors start to look over the fence, so to speak, and and start to see the um, effects of the restoration and then have the desire to spread that onto adjacent private lands or when the government, you know, I don't know if there's government lands around there, at, at what point the camp starts to actually kind of flip a wider regional transformation. Yeah, that's also coming close to some of the data sets. So there is some evidence that suggests that 100 square, uh, 100 hectares, okay, 100 square hectares, um, might be an area. Or you you might look at it 100 square kilometers. Uh-huh. So if you get 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers, you have 100 square kilometers. That level of change in in the microbial organic layer vegetative cover and the height of the canopy means temperature differentials change yeah it means moisture it means it means that you're emitting you're 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 probably going to reach critical mass one of the interesting facts was that 21 grams per kilogram of air is critical mass for precipitation well, that's a useful fact. We ought to all talk about that. Hmm. So if we can't reach 21 grams per kilogram of air, it's not going to rain. 
So what are the what's the dynamic? So wait, twenty one grams. Can you twenty one grams of what per kilogram per moisture, kilogram moisture? Moisture. Okay. Okay. But you also need volatile organic compounds, yeah. which are the nuclei for cloud formation and the nuclei for raindrops. Yeah. So if you if you don't if you don't have this, so you need you need certain conditions. Yeah. So the the high and the hydrological cycle. One of the things that I also found was. Because I kept running around like, what's going on here? You know, why is it a desert? I, w- once I went to Ethiopia and I, I, I was trying to figure out what's going on there. And it was bone dry. There's not a, not a plant in sight. And I said, I wonder what the rainfall is here. And the, the, there was a professor on the trip. And he said, oh, I think it's about 3,000 millimeters annually. And I'm like, what? You know, I I I, I, I I, I cannot, this does not compute. You know, I, I don't get it. Yeah. How could there be 3,000 millimeters and, and it looks like this? Because it's not about rainfall. Yeah. It's about infiltration and retention and cycling. Yeah. So if that, were, if that were all infiltrated, cycled, it would be paradise. It was paradise. And that's why all these places were called the land of milk and honey or the, you know, yeah. Garden of Eden and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And now they look like that. Well, yeah, you know, I, I witnessed what you're talking about. I was in India for a couple of months um, this winter, and we visited this one site uh, in the state of Karnataka where a, a guy who um, was very wealthy, he was really dedicated to wildlife preservation, and he had uh, bought a very large area of land kind of bordering this uh, natural wildlife preserve. And so he kind of created a buffer for people to come through, you know, so they couldn't come through with their grazing animals. And... Um, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head how many uh, square kilometers it was, but it was quite a large area, and he actually had a higher recorded rainfall within this now forested zone than the surrounding agricultural lands. Even when there was a drought and the rainfall dropped in the surrounding areas, the forested, you know, large forested area that he had had created uh, maintained its precipitation amounts. And so, um, yeah, it'd be curious actually for me to see how many square kilometers that was, but, you know, it was quite large. And so, um, I think what you're saying is, is really valid. It'd be really fascinating, like you said, to get the data and be able to show like, look, this hundred and square kilometer unit here now has a higher precipitation level than the degraded landscape, you know, in this area over here. I think I think there's a couple of things that come to my mind when you talk about this. One is we need to constantly communicate about these kinds of things because our understanding grows. So, for instance, rainfall, in my experience, is actually not a very good measure. Hmm. So... So the idea that we're always, and I started out always asking, like, what's your rainfall? I thought everybody should go around asking, what's your rainfall? But now I recognize that available moisture is a better indicator than rainfall. And that available moisture could be double Mm. the the rainfall. And there are places with zero, zero millimeters of rainfall. 
that still have water in relative humidity. Isn't that odd? You know, so that that's a that's a kind of a clue that rainfall is not a very good indicator. But but I mean, rainfall is one thing that we should look at. But another one is that moisture. So this twenty one grams in a kilogram, twenty one grams of moisture in a kilogram of air to reach critical mass for precipitation is important. But imagine that you only get 19. What's, what's the dynamic if you don't reach critical mass? Now, what we saw in many places and is, is that large areas have been devegetated. And the surface of the earth, you know, you have these, you have a simplistic argument about our, our, um, Albedo, the albedo effect, just the color, the absor- you know, light absorption or light reflection. That's too simplistic. That's an effect. But let me tell you a number of other effects, like the canopy, the height of the canopy. Let's imagine the redwoods are at 115 meters now, and that's where the light starts to diffuse. Well, that's pretty huge. That means there's a microclimate with diffuse light from 115 meters. That's completely different. Now, imagine that light goes directly down to the ground, and the ground is bare. Well, measure the ground that's bare, and then measure the ground below a canopy. And what you're going to find is huge temperature differentials. So 20, 30, I found 45 degrees centigrade temperature differentials, which are created by human beings. So this kind of stuff, it's it's too... big the thing the 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 concept is it's physics it's solar radiation it's you know it's 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 all kinds of huge stuff so you've got to study this probably for the rest of your lives and probably in the next generations but anyway what 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 sort of happens what can we know instantly about this we know it creates thermal drafts the heat pushes the moisture into the high altitude when it reaches a certain altitude, it's not going to precipitate, no matter what happens. It's going to move in the jet streams. It's going to go around in different places. And at some point, it's going to come down. And where's it going to come down? Probably where, you know, it's going to wreak havoc where it comes down. Because you need all the water to be where it's supposed to be. That is the evolutionary outcome. The evolutionary outcomes are connected to these trends in symbiotic relationships between living organisms processed the planet and created and constantly filtered and continuously renewed the systems which we depend on for life. And because of that prodigious and amazing and miraculous kind of activity, that took place over geologic and evolutionary time, you get to have human history. And it, during the time of human history, and just the, the last moments of this huge thing, we've just destroyed this by being selfish and ignorant. So by not understanding what was going on, and by saying, yeah, our purpose is to acquire material possessions and have power over other people, we have disrupted the, the, the systems which have created paradise. 
that that's what I think has happened. That's what I see the the observation in in a, on a global perspective. That's what it looks like to me. Mm. That's what I would describe I have seen in my research around the world over the last 25 years. Yeah. And um, it's it's stunning to come to this kind of a, a, a realization, too, because, like, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, so you go out there and you go, oh, my gosh. So hundreds or, you know, you know, it's like, what, four or five hundred generations since settled agriculture? Is it more? You know, let's see. In a hundred years, would you say it's five generations? Probably on average, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so a thousand years is is is, is fifty generations. Is that right? Yeah, so ten thousand years would be five hundred generations. Yeah, so five hundred generations, yeah. six hundred generations. If you go back twelve thousand years, yeah. you know, I don't know. So, so let's so ten, twelve thousand years. So some thousands of generations. Anyway, we have really screwed up. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so the, the odds of getting it right in our generation. So now we come to our time, yeah. you know? So, okay. All these people have messed up and we've had Jesus and Buddha and, you know, Mohammed and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela all telling us, Oh, you better do something different. But, but instead we just keep doing more of the same. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, here we are, and we're staring, like we know all of these civilizations that failed in the cradles of civilization. We know, because you can go to the epicenter, and it's ruined. So they ruined their ecology, and it collapsed, and the civilization left. Now, at that time, a civilization could rise in another part of the world. But... At this point, we're, you know, seven and a half billion or more people. We're adding a billion people every 12 years. There's nowhere to go. This is why some of the people who have, who have sort of put their, who are betting on abiotic systems, that we can make machines, yeah. you know, the, the idea that we could make a machine that would sequester carbon that's better than a biochemical photoreactive process that developed over billions of years and that includes all living things on the planet. That's ludicrous. It's just so stupid. I can't even, you know, the, 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 the idea of it is just, are you kidding? And so you're going to have to use energy. You're going to have to extract stuff and then you're going to make this machine and it's going to somehow be better yeah. Than a symbiotic relationship that's photoreactive and biochemical. Yeah, this and, tree that, is a much better machine. <laughs> right. It's hilarious. Yeah. So, so you know, the odds are that we fail. But being somewhat optimistic and saying, "Well, no, no, you know, we're we're not supposed to fail. We're supposed to evolve. We're supposed to become enlightened. We're supposed to understand what this means." So we, we, we need to let go of the institutions and the beliefs that are wrong, that are talking to us like, oh, well, social hierarchies and, you know, the poor will always be with us or, you know, that, that it's, it's okay to, you know, have more. We, you know, we can buy our rights. Yeah. Those who don't have any rights, well, they're just unfortunate, you know, too bad for them. 
Well, that's ridiculous. We, we need to get to another level of this because this is what's destroying the ecological function on the planet. So um, how can people help and how can people contribute to the ecosystem restoration camps at this point? Well, I think we have to, do we want this? I mean, we, we have to think about, do we want this? Do we need this? Uh-huh. And if we do, we have to realize that we, we, we need to share a little something here. We need to share. And if we, if, 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 Many people join as supporting members this foundation that started the Ecosystem Restoration Camps Foundation. By, by supporting this with 10 euros per month, then that, as individuals, we're not, it's, not a, it's not a huge ask. It's not a huge sacrifice for each individual. And in aggregate, it only works if we get to huge numbers. But if we get to if we get to big numbers, we're a force. So the, right now, what we've seen is there are any number of people who want to go to camp. They will go to camp. They will work to restore the earth. But in order to do that, they need to be housed. They need to have food. They, that's that's about it. You know, we we need to have the tools and the, the seeds and the you know trainers available to help them to learn, but they're willing to go. The other thing we're finding out is there's huge amounts of land that is degraded and the people, either the, 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 the people who steward this or own this or the, or the governments or the public lands, they're willing to invite camps to go there all over the world. So we have, we have camps now being, negotiated for Mexico, Nepal, Kenya, California. There are places all over the world, Netherlands. So places all over the world would like to have camps. And we, we, we said, well, we're not, we don't have any money. We can't buy camps. Yeah. So the camps are not permanent facilities anyway. We, the, the foundation and the local organization that builds camps, they're the ones who own the camps. So if the camp moves to another place, it, it's it's owned by the by the foundation. The land is not owned. You know, in 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 a way, it's accepting what the the indigenous people said. Nobody owns the land. Yeah. We're going to die. How could you own the land? The land owns you. You're going to give up your body. Uh-huh. So it will become soil. You know how how what do you think? Yeah. So I I think this is the right way now because we don't have time to you know, run around, raise money to buy things, yeah. we need to put, put as many people on the ground yeah. with, as, with less consumption. We don't want to consume anything. You know, we want to sit there with zero or, you know, like zero or low impact anyway, the lowest impact that we can achieve. And, and then restore so we're not impacting so we're removing our our major consumption and waste and and energy use and pollution and then we're positively restoring ecological function so i mean the main thing that i've been working on for the last 25 years is to understand what is a functional ecosystem and what is a degraded ecosystem and the the fact is we we can we can make functional ecosystems if we understand them. 
we don't have to accept degraded states. And the, the other part of this is restoring the earth restores our faith in humanity and makes us joyous and happy and satisfied. Whereas we're mostly running around paranoid or, or, or confused or, or angry by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, which is what's happening in the society. It's, in a, in a way, you went to India, I think it's, it's close to this Indian philosophy concept of illusion, that samsara is a very, very um, detailed type of illusion. So this illusion, we look at it and we think it's very important, but no one will remember this. <laughs> but, but whatever our understanding and our actions about the ecology, that's what that's going to be the quality of their life. It's going to determine everything for them. And we'll be, we'll definitely be gone. Yeah. You know, and I've got to say, um, from what I saw in India, I mean, I visited a lot of projects and I visited large scale restoration projects where, you know, they did water harvesting over, uh, you know, hundreds of square miles and, you know, involving, this one project I went to in Rajasthan involved 1.3 million villagers, and they had rebuilt the water table in, you know, the Tar Desert, which is the most highly populated, uh, densely populated desert on the planet. And, um, you know, I, I saw, I, I saw, you know, pictures and to understand they built these giant water harvesting structures, massive ponds all by hand. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people coming out and working and the whole village or multiple villages coming together and working on, you know, one village's water systems and moving over. And it really actually, um, it, it, it's very, the vision that we're talking about with the ecosystem restoration camps, I believe we can see that actually manifest there in India. Of course, there's really a culture to support togetherness and selflessness and they have people like gandhi and you know to to look to um to you know have an example of of what it's like for people to actually be selfless and come together for the good of the community and they're agriculturalists and they do reap direct benefit from restoring their water tables in the tar desert where i was they now can grow two crops a year where before they could only grow one crop a year. And what that does for the food security, the stability of their entire culture, uh, you know, people don't have to leave when they have, uh, when they miss the rains, you know, they don't have to migrate to the cities and be, um, you know, poor there all of a sudden. So, uh, yeah, so I believe, and I believe especially because I feel like I saw it there in India, and I think that they have a lot of examples to show. Is there any um, last thing? last thought that you'd like to leave people with or, or some more information about how they can uh, join and, and get on the um, list to donate to the foundation or anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of things. I think on the one hand, ecosystemrestorationcamps.org. I hope you'll promote the, yeah, for sure. the website and that people can go there and they can, you know, there are people that we have a, a thing called founding friends. So people are, some people are giving like over a thousand euros to become nice. founding friends. And some people are giving even larger. We had some larger um, gifts of like 30 or 50,000 euros to, to, to jumpstart this. But 
most people are giving 10 euros per month, uh, which is 120 euros per year. So I think that's less than $150. I, I don't know exactly what that is. In, in, yeah, what's the dollar dollars, to the euro these days, right? I don't know. Yeah. It just it fluctuates, but I think it's I think it's about one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. So, you know, for one hundred and fifty dollars a year, you are a supporting member of the of the camp. You can pay yearly or you can pay monthly, whatever you want. And you know, the the whole point of this is is just to get to the point where we have enough sort of we have a critical mass that can do something. And right now, the camps we're negotiating, I, I don't know if I, me- I think I mentioned this with Mexico, Nepal, Kenya, and in California and the Netherlands. Hmm. So those are, the, those are the ones who have requested, and there's like six or seven others that are requested, but they haven't really been processed as far as these others. Hmm. Um, and each of these has to be self-organizing and self-governing. I mean, it's not going to be possible to have huge numbers of camps and then try to have a centralized authority trying to deal with it. So we, we think that the local camps, they have to, we, we, we're trying to create a standard in a way that, that says, well, these places should be safe and comfortable and have good sanitation and good food. You know, and then because they're they're doing the work for the whole society and for the civilization, so let's make it nice for them. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And let's go there. Let's all go there. Let's let's be there together. And what happens is you get a horizontal then situation instead of getting a vertical situation where you have hierarchies. You have basically everybody there, and everybody's talking about it. And and everybody's saying, well, let's infiltrate the water, (laughs) you know, let's restore the soil fertility, let's sequester carbon, let's understand biodiversity, let's save the seeds. Imagine seed saving, seed trading, heirloom seeds, you know, in in all the camps. This is is huge. So imagine large nursery systems. Let's propagate and plant out the indigenous endemic plants. They never do this in commercial nurseries because nobody buys them. They only do ornamentals or, or you know, fast-growing commercial species. Yeah. Let's do what needs to be done to regulate the climate. So yeah. this brings and, – and, you know, I saw that in China. China sort of started doing this quietly and nobody was noticing in the rest of the world. But the Chinese are going, well, we can't, we can't not have functional – hydrology. We can't lose all the soil. We have the population is a billion three hundred million. We have to feed them. We have to have water. And so they started to do this and they're really in a in a they're in a in a growth mode for diverse forests. Before they were in a degraded state with you know bare earth. Hmm. And now they're on this thing. So when you see that happening and percentages increases in forests or or an understanding of the role of perennial grassland systems or the understanding of peatlands the understanding of wetlands you know this is the type of understanding that goes far beyond what we're what we've been understanding as we went from our house to our car to our office and back 
you know, we, we need to, to realize that we live on the earth, we drink water, we eat food, we breathe air, and it's, it's the protection of, uh, of, of, from the solar radiation, that, uh, da- dangerous solar radiation, and, and uh, the temperature differentials that are controlled by symbiotic life forms that have given rise to humanity. This is the basis of life, and we need these things, or we're going to go away. And so when we understand that, we have to also ask these other questions. What's the value of this? So right now we're saying to all these permaculture kids, well, there's no job for you. Grow vegetables and sell them at the farmer's market or create a uh, community-sustained agriculture system. Yeah. But this is ridiculous. They, they're going to do the, the very thing which the United Nations and all these other people are, are creating giant funds, <laughs> the global, global climate funds to do, but they're not going to give the money to, to people. Yeah. They want to give the money to experts, to corporations. Yeah. Well, that, what is that going to do? Right. You know, then, then the people are going to be slaves working in, in these things. No, forget about it change it. We have to kind of be a little bit adamant about this, have, have a very, you know, be, you know, be compassionate and, and kind, but tell the truth. The, the fact is, this is the most valuable thing you can do on the planet. And the people who choose to do this are heroes. And, and the heroes who, who do this, they, they, they should, you know, they, who can do this? It's the homeless, it's the, the refugees, it's the, the people who are, it's the young people, it's the retired people, it's, it's everybody. Yeah. And when everybody does this and everybody treats everybody with respect and equality, and, and this community and this community everybody is fed, we change the course of human history, not only restoring the ecological systems, but changing the way that humans interact with each other yeah. instead of having only a, uh, a kind of transactional uh, society we have a we have a humane society yeah well it seems like it needs to be a social movement you know when i look at places like like i went to the uh, the eclipse you know they had this giant eclipse last summer in oregon and they had this festival out in, in eastern oregon out in the, the high desert and, you know, 50,000 people came. And, I mean, they went through this monumental, massive effort to set up these structures. And, I mean, it was, like, crazy. They built this small city. And it seems like that kind of energy right now, at least in, in the U.S., there's that energy for festival. I've never been to Burning Man, but there's, like, something like 80,000 people go to Burning Man, right? And they build, you know, it's this massive amount of energy. And people put a lot of effort in, and they create this whole society. It would be it would be really great to see that kind of energy and that kind of social and cultural mobilization going into restoration. I'd really like to see that sort of merge, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that I've noticed is that you have to be pretty patient because when I started to talk about these things and I left journalism to start studying soil and poor people, my family, you know, the people I worked with, everybody went like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, 
I said, no, this is more important. And they said, well, we don't understand you. And it's taken years and years and decades for people to start to understand what I'm talking about. And so what I've, I've at, at different periods, you know, there's frustration there if nobody wants to listen to this. And, but, but, you know, there's like a, a belief that, well, okay, you may not want to hear this, but actually this is true. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is not about my opinion. I'm going to die. It's irrelevant to me. It's more important to you <laughs> and to future generations, to younger people, because I'm already 65. You know, it's really not my problem. It's your problem. Mm -hmm. So I think when people understand this and then they look around, they have to ask, themselves, well, what are we going to do? So are we going to are we going to try the corporations or the governments or the international agencies? And we're going to believe that they're going to somehow, you know, they have stripes now, but, you know, they're going to wake up with spots. You know, I, I don't think so. I think they're going to have stripes, you know, and definitely, you know. And what we need to do is we need to say, whose responsibility is it? And the responsibility is firmly on human humanity. Yeah. It's, it's definitely human civilization that has to do this. So where are we going to come down? I think we should come down on the side of human civilization. We should work together. You can't do this alone. I can't do it. I can, you know, I can study this and I can write and make some films and I can plant some trees and grow some soils and teach some people, you know, but, you know, this is irrelevant in a way. The only way that we, we actually succeed is if we all do this together. Yeah. So who are you going to do this with? Well, you probably want to do this with the people who've been studying it for decades and years. You don't want to try to learn everything new because it's really hard. So there is a group of people, and we're gathering them together in the advisory council. So all the people who've been working for decades, Dr. John Todd, the, yeah. the creator of, you know, constructed wetlands and you know all of the every every warren brush and brock dolman and ben falk and i mean all these people okay all join together and they go from camp to camp and teach and share and everybody will learn and 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 that way we can all immediately act and we can all collaboratively study together. And we have to get to the point where we understand it's in our mutual benefit. What's good for you is good for me. Yeah. And maybe there's a higher level. I, if, I can, if I can just forget about anything and, and renounce all, all material possessions and just be a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. But that's not something that you can really ask right. from anybody that's that's if you make it that far well good for you you know but <laughs> but but you know the reality is we're you know we're flawed we're we're individuals and you know we we have to do our best and if we do that we get satisfaction we get joy we get a result we're we stop to consume so much we stop to pollute and we're, we're engaged, we're eating organic food together with our friends, we're not paying for it, you know, we're, we're, we're earning it, but we're not paying for it. And like, here's the money, you know, and yeah. 
if you don't have the money, you don't eat. We know in our community, everybody eats. You know, so th- that that's that's the 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 way we need to act. So, you know, I do hope people will understand this. I do hope they will join. I do hope they will organize locally. So, I think California is going to be big, hmm. and I'm sure that that's true in other countries where they start to understand yeah. that uh, they have to organize. It's not that nobody's going to come in and save them. Yeah. They're going to have to organize and do it themselves. Yeah. But having a network. And connecting this to a global movement, that's really important. So, you know, having all the top designers and trainers and planners in this, involved in this, and and having this outside of commercialism, Mm -hmm. it's not a business, it's not a consultancy, it's it, let's do this, let's restore the earth for everybody. Let's not, like, if you pay me, I'll restore the earth. That's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, sharing yourself. I really appreciate it. I'm sure that listeners are going to appreciate it as well. And um, I'm I'm going to sign up and I'm going to contribute my uh, monthly contribution for sure. And I hope that other people that are listening do as well. And um, I wish I want to say you cause you've made it clear that this isn't this isn't you and this isn't your thing. This is our thing. So I would say I wish us all the best of luck with this. Yes. And, and thank you. And, you know, I would just say I'm, I'm paying my, I'm paying my dues in, in this. I'm not paid by, by the foundation, anything. Yeah. I'm the voluntary chairman of the advisory council. Hmm. So that's, that's, you know, the only thing I'm doing is, is sharing everything that I know and trying to stimulate this movement for everybody else. Awesome. All right. Well, have a good day over there in Beijing, and I'll have a good night over here in Oregon. And thank you. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.